So what can we learn from the story of Zacchaeus? What can we learn from the story of Zacchaeus? We're continuing in his story. We've been at it for quite a while. We're actually right on the verge of getting to the beginning of Holy Week, which happens at the end of Lent. So we've accomplished a lot. I want you to feel really good. We've gone all the way from Genesis to way, way into the Gospels. You don't look very happy. And one of the things I want to say as we begin is the Bible is just a good book and it's just full of good stories. And Luke has wonderful stories. And there are four that are unique to Luke that I want to draw your attention to this morning. You have the story of the lost coin. You have the story of the lost sheep. You have the story of the waiting father, which was usually what you and I would call the parable of the prodigal son. But it's really about the waiting father more, isn't it? And, and then you have Zacchaeus, and all these stories are unique to Luke, and they reflect his heart and the heart of Jesus in Luke, which is somebody who does surprising things, and someone has a particular heart for the outcast, for the one who's away, for the one who's outside, for those who are left out, left over, cast off, whatever kind of imagery you want to use. So let's look at the text together, if you'd be so kind. Uh, you need to take out your bulletin or your pew Bible or your PDA, or whatever you got with you, and we're going to look in some detail at Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10 in the story of Zacchaeus. And what I want to do for just a moment is walk through the story under three headings, and then we'll see where we go from there. So just in order for us all to stay together, I want to look at the characters of the story, I want to look at the conduct of those characters in the story, I want to look at the conclusion of the story. So once again, Characters, conduct, and then conclusion. You all with me so far? All right, so let's look at the story and let's consider the characters. There are primarily three. We have Zacchaeus, we have Jesus, and we have the crowd. So let's take them one at a time. Let's dispense with the crowd first of all. We'll come back to them later. But just so that you know that they're there, it's, it's crucial that they play the role that they play in the story, verse 3, on account of the crowd. Nicholas Murray Butler, the late great president of Columbia University, said human beings are divided into three classes, those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and the vast majority who have no idea what's happening. And, and, and this is a good illustration. You have all three of those people, but Jesus has been at it for a while. We're way into his three years of ministry. We're getting toward the end, and so he constantly gathers a crowd because he's known for doing remarkable things, for saying jarring and surprising things, and he's definitely on the front page of the paper a lot and one of the top stories on the news a lot. There's a curiosity factor. There's the convinced, yes. There's the committed, yes, but there's also the curious, and they're all there. And Zacchaeus is there too. Second, just a word about our Lord. It's important that you know that Luke's gospel has a particular structure. And when we get to our story today, we're in a very important place. And that is right on the climax of the end of what's called the journey narrative. But it started in chapter 9, verse 51. It says, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, chapter 9, verse 51. And Jesus actually gets to Jerusalem in chapter 19 at the end of verse 27. And when he had said these things, verse 28, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jericho is 15 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So Jesus is 15 miles journey to the southwest to the beginning of what's going to be the last week and all of those events in his life. When you know you're going to die and it's getting closer and closer, you choose your priorities. Samuel Johnson once said, 
It is a wonderful thing for a man to, to know that he's going to be hanged in a fortnight. It concentrates the mind wonderfully. You choose your priorities. And what's so shocking about this story is it comes to the very end of Jesus' life, and yet this is the way that he chooses to conduct himself. And then there's this guy. Oh, yeah, him. He's at the heart of the story. He's the one the story's named for, Zacchaeus, which means what? It means pure. You need to know that as we begin. This, this whole story is rich with reversals and irony. He's pure. He's supposed to be a Puritan in the good sense. That is to say, people who seek to be pure and holy and pure in heart and to seek after God. That's what his name actually means. And he couldn't be farther from what his name really means. So many strikes there are against this guy. Just consider, first of all, he's a tax collector. It's horrible, absolutely horrible. Not only is he a tax collector, he's the chief tax collector. One of the commentators says he's the head of the local IRS office. But you need to know how the IRS worked back in that day. The Romans held them responsible for collecting a certain amount of taxes. That was their job. So if they needed to get uh, 10,000 shekels of taxes from you, all they had to do was make sure to get that to Rome. They could collect over and above the 10,000 shekels themselves and siphon it off the top. And the really good tax collectors siphoned off 30 and 40 and even 50%. So they charge you 15,000 shekels, even though you only owed 10,000 shekels, and then they pocket 5,000 shekels. How would you feel about somebody like that if they did it over and over and over again? So hated was he that you can just imagine as he's trying to go through the crowd, people turning around and spitting on him. That's how loathed he was as a character in the community. He is not simply a tax collector. He's fundamentally corrupt, not done. He's rich. Oh, no. There's a whole other negative category. And you know from his small stature that he's one of those guys, I went to school with several people like this, who try to overcompensate for their smallness and character by trying to establish themselves to be big in some other way. And you better believe he was rich because he made it, Ma, thank you very much, and he lorded his riches over everybody. So not only was he rich, he lorded it over everybody that he was rich, and he did it through corrupt means. And I'm still not done because he worked for the Romans. The Romans are terrible. The Roman Empire was greatly feared and resented by the Jewish people. So he's a tax collector, he's rich, he's corrupt, he works for the Romans. Yuck! Nobody spoke to this guy. Nobody wanted anything to do with this guy. It's not just that he wouldn't have made it in the vestry. In the church back then, he wouldn't have made it in the door. And yet he's the one that's at the center of the story. Go with me so far? So first of all, the crowd, our Lord, and Zacchaeus. Now second, the conduct. And this is where the story really hinges and turns. Look at how Zacchaeus conducts himself. It's wonderful stuff, this. He's tiny. So think of, oh, I don't know, Fr Francois Mitterrand, if you know anything about him. I mean, people are short, are always frustrated they're short. If you know anything about the pictures of the G7 and whenever he was there, he, he would always have to you know, get himself in the right place in the program because he, he was always afraid that he looked shorter than he was and not big enough with all the other world leaders. And Zacchaeus spent his whole life like that. 
He was enterprising. He got his riches by the stint of his own hand and his own creativity and his own energy. And so the same Zacchaeus that got all those riches by his energy was, and we don't know why, we just know that he had a burning curiosity to see Jesus. He was determined to get to see this guy for himself. And he couldn't. He couldn't from the back of the crowd, and he couldn't get through the crowd. So he goes to a sycamore tree, which has a really big, uh, wide trunk, at the bottom, and then he has really big, wide branches, and he goes up, which is interesting because uh, somebody of his stature in the community up in a tree is not looking very good with his oriental robe. What's he doing up there? He's already in a place where it's surprising the way that he conducts himself. Clearly, he's seeking after Jesus, and he doesn't care what it looks like. He's just going to get this done, and he's not going to be dissuaded by any obstacle that's put in his way. So what's going to happen when Jesus gets there? Let's just say for the purposes of our argument that there's 300 people. Could be 500, could be 1,000, but let's just say 300. So Jesus is going by on the road to Jericho, and there's all this crowd. And so Jesus is really good. He took Dale Carnegie, and he knows how to motivate people. So he goes to the crowd, and he sees he's got 300 prospective clients. And so he starts speaking to the crowd, right? Which is what anybody trained in Dale Carnegie would do, right? how to win friends and influence people, right? Wrong. Jesus flunks Dale Carnegie 101. Not only does he flunk Dale Carnegie 101, he flunks church growth 101. I mean, come on. What is the problem with this guy? There's 300 people there. He goes through the whole crowd, doesn't pay any attention to any of them, and goes under a tree. This is ludicrous. It makes no sense. Welcome to the world where the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Somehow, Jesus got a word from the Lord that this was an appointed day where he needed to meet this man, Zacchaeus. And so he finds himself under the tree looking up at Zacchaeus. Now look at your text and watch the magic as it happens. This is crucial for our purposes. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Before I go any farther... And I just point out to you the importance of eye contact and raise the question. It's raised by more than one commentator. When was the last time anybody really looked Zacchaeus in his eyes for who he really was all by himself? He's one of the loneliest people in the community. He's one of the most ostracized people in the community. And Jesus is right at the base of the tree and he's looking up and he's looking down and Jesus has him completely in view. It's a one-on-one encounter. The eyes, says an ancient Arabic saying, are the windows of the soul. Well, this is a window of the soul look. And it means the world to Zacchaeus. Not only does he look him in the eye, look at verse 5, he says his name. We've, We've been on this before. I can't emphasize this enough, brothers and sisters. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Names matter, right? There's the burning bush. There's Moses. He turns aside. It's burning. It's not consumed. And the voice cries out, hey, what's your name? Hey, what's your name? No. That isn't the God with whom we have to do. Guess what happens in glory in heaven? Newsflash. You get to meet a Lord who knows you better than you know yourself, and he's going to say your name. I answered to Kendall. Right? That's my name. I'm not Ken. I give you two tries. I've said this to you before. I try to be charitable, but my friends all know if I'm ever in a public setting and somebody introduces me as Ken, they just all laugh. A person obviously doesn't know anything about me. I hate Ken. 
It's one of those little, you know, it's like little VWs that park in your parking spot. It's sort of a, it's a lifelong unbearable thing for me. I hate it, right? Nothing against Ken's. I'm just not him, right? And I'm not the doll either, but that's another story for another time. Okay, but you, you see the point though. To say somebody's name and to look into their eyes and to look into their soul is to make an enormous introductory connection on which the whole relationship turns. And now look at the text and look at what Jesus says. This is striking stuff. Sometimes you have to take initiative and do the opposite of what's expected. Jesus invites himself over to his house. I must stay at your house. You all see where I am, verse 5? Today. So Zacchaeus, who went up, must come down. And Jesus is going to his house, not to the 300, but to the one. Not to the many really encouraging prospects, at least on paper, who seem like God seekers and at least have resumes where they look like they might be close to God. No, none of those people. It's the person who looks like he's farthest away from God in the community that Jesus wants to go to. So Zacchaeus goes and hurries down and receives him joyfully. And that word in verse 6, received, means literally to receive him as a guest in his house. And what a conversation they may have had. There are lots of ways to block out this story, but one of the really fascinating ones is if he doesn't live that far from where it starts, maybe the whole crowd went over uh, to where he lived, and Jesus and he went into the house, and then he came back out. It's that kind of a thing that could have been going on, and you wonder what Jesus and Zacchaeus talked about on the way, but you especially wonder what they talked about in the house when they're having a meal. And remember, we're in a culture where hospitality is the number one priority in the ancient Near East. So to be in somebody's home is to be in their heart. It is to approach that place where they're most vulnerable and they're most real, and they're most themselves. And Jesus wants all of those things. So that's the conduct of Jesus, and that's the conduct of Zacchaeus. And then we have the conduct of the crowd. Don't miss it. Verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Oh, dear. Literally, dion gudgudzo in Greek. The sound of cooing doves and humming bees, a constant, intense murmur. It conveys heavy complaining, the constant buzz of negative murmuring. And what I want you to notice about it is it's a liturgical chorus. It starts and never stops. And I want you to notice that little word, all, in case you try to somehow get yourself out of the community. What this story is begging us to realize is if we had been there that day, it's not a few of the people or the teachers of the people or the elders of the people or the adults of the people. It's all the people. This is group think 101. They're all in this together. It's mob mentality. This is terrible. Obviously, Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. He flunks church growth. He flunks Dale Carnegie. This guy's a terrible rabbi. He's going with the wrong person at the wrong time. He's crazy. They're upset. God doesn't spend time with people like that. This guy's corrupt. This guy's cheated me out of tons and tons of shekels over decades. I hate him. What is Jesus doing in his house? That's what they're saying to one another, and they're not happy. Do you see yourself in them? It's very, very convicting. And now finally the conclusion of the story. And Zacchaeus has this guest in his house and this conversation happens. 
and the whole world is turned upside down. In the words of one commentator, he is the rich man who goes through the eye of the needle because with God all things are possible. And he says when he comes out, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You see where I am, verse 8? And what I want you to notice about this is in the, in the ancient world, normal restitution was 20%. The Mishnah in Jewish tradition added 20 more percent for a particularly severe penalty, but the highest penalty in the Old Testament, which is a fourfold rate, is in Exodus 22 for someone who is basically a longtime robber. So what Zacchaeus is actually doing is he's saying, I have robbed this community and I'm giving back fourfold. And what I want you to realize is the implications of that for him as well as the implications of that for them. One of the commentators says this. It's a, it's a delightful observation. He says, that would have been a long list. Think about that. It's not just fourfold. It's fourfold to a lot of people over a lot of time. This is not the same guy we saw at the beginning of the story. It's a total transformation. It's a complete sea change. And then you get the convicting statement in the two verbs that he gives. Not I will, but look at verse 9. I give, I restore. It's decisive. It's present. It's a complete transformation from here forward, which is what real repentance is. It's all three turns. It's turning away from his sin. It's turning around and embracing Jesus. But it's also turning forward and going in a whole different direction, which is not simply about his wealth, but the whole rest of his life. And Jesus ends our passage by summing up his entire ministry with this remarkable statement. The Son of Man came to do what? To heal, to pray, to tend to the sick, to release those from being in prison from being in prison. All those things are true of our Lord, but that's not the heart of Jesus' ministry. And Luke wants to make sure for us, and Jesus wants to make sure for us, right before the last week of his life st starts, that we are absolutely clear about the fundamental reason that he came. To save sinners. To save those who are lost. So what do you get at the end of this story? It's a remarkable set of observations if you actually write them all down. The crowd is surprised. A man is transformed. A man is saved. A connection is established. And, as if all that isn't enough, our Lord's ministry is underlined. All those things happen in this one little innocent story. Boom. So there we are. Now we can all go home. Had a great time, great characters, great story. Thank you, Kendall. All done. Nope, sorry. Have to go from preaching to meddling. So I have two ways I want to go at this for you. First of all, I want to suggest that this is an important story for us because it confronts us with an aspect of God's character and God's work which we need to confront very directly, and it's this. Our God is a God who transforms. Our God is a God who changes deeply, fundamentally, completely. Here's Warren Wearsby's outline for the changes Zacchaeus experienced in this story. It's only 10 verses. Listen to this. Zacchaeus is a man who became a child, ran down the road, went up the tree. He is a seeking man who became found. He is a small man who became big, and he is a poor man who became rich. 
all in one day in one story. Again, a man who became a child, a seeking man who became found, a small man who became big, a poor man that became rich. Why are we here every week, brothers and sisters? Lots and lots of reasons. But you need to understand, as an Anglican Christian, when you come to liturgy, what you're saying. You're saying every week, you believe in a God who changes. How do I know that? Because later this morning, we're going to pray over bread and wine. It's just ordinary bread and wine. It's all it is, except that we pray that the Holy Spirit will make it, hello, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, every week you come and embrace a fundamental belief at the core of our worship life in a God who transforms. And yet you look at the average American Christian and everything's stuck. It stays the same. It doesn't look like God can do much of anything. That's not the God of this passage. I like to talk about change. One of my favorite funny stories is the patient who goes to his doctor, kind of, this is a middle-aged guy, and uh, the doctor does the whole you know, rigmarole workup, and he says, you're in terrible shape. You've got to do something about it. First of all, I want you to tell your wife to cook you more nutritious meals. Second thing is I want you to stop working like a dog. Thirdly, I want you to inform your life that you're going to make a budget and you have to stick to it. You have to keep your kids off your back so you can relax. And unless there are fundamental changes that are in your life, you'll probably be dead in a month. The patient takes all this in, looks at the doctor and says, Doc, you know, this is a little bit overwhelming. And it would sound a little better coming from you instead of me. So could you please call my wife and give her these instructions? So he goes home. He comes to the door. And his wife meets him at the door and says, Your doctor called. You've got 30 days to live. You all can relate to that. Change is scary. Change is very scary. But we believe that change is possible as Christians, and we believe that fundamental change is possible. Think about sports, and think about teams, and think about their legacy and the way that they change. One of the recent examples that's really worth citing is the New York Giants, who won the Super Bowl in 2008. But what a lot of people don't know is the season before story. And Tom Coughlin, the coach, was just, he was just terrible. The, the, the players hated him, and he was known for haranguing his players on a regular basis. And uh, Coughlin, after that 8-8 season, was told by more than one person he needed a leadership makeover. And uh, the next season, they had an 8- or 9-year-old boy who came to their first practice who made a beeline toward Coughlin, and uh, he, he kind of was watching him, you know, early on. This is the Super Bowl winning season. And since he was eight or nine, you know, Coughlin caught sight of him. And so he went over to him. You know, he's pre- not, not often you get an eight or nine-year-old reporter. And he says, do you have any questions for me? And the, and the young, young boy says, I hear you're a lot nicer this year. Who put you up to that? And the coach just has gales of laughter. Michael Strahan, who played on that team, said, he was so transformed, I barely recognized him. He spent three years, he later said, trying to change his players. It didn't work. Guess what? Then he decided to change himself. And that's what changed his players. They won the Super Bowl. His players said, it's not working. We don't work well being harangued. And he tried being nice. But it wasn't about them. It was about him. And it wasn't about the outside in. It was about the inside out. That's the Lord that we serve. I seem to remember that he was at a wedding once and he turned water into wine. 
I seem to remember that he went to a dead man's grave named Lazarus, and the guy went from being dead to being alive. Do you believe in a God like that? Do you pray to God like that? And here's the way that this applies to us, brothers and sisters, where we live and move and have our being. I know the way life works well enough to know you've got something in your life that's an intractable, frustrating problem. And here's what you need to understand. Satan's job is to convince you it won't change. That's Satan's job. Don't believe in the power of God. I don't know whether it's a frustrating co-worker or an irritating grandson or an incredibly intractable habit in your life that you've never been able to get rid of. You're desperately trying to. I know that you've got something in your life you know needs to change and it's not changing and you're not going to pray anymore because you're tired of having your dreams crashed on the rocks of reality. And that's right where Satan wants you. And I'm here to say this morning that the God who trans transform Zacchaeus is the God who can transform you and it all things are possible with God including your intractable problem whatever it is don't give up give it over to God his power still works y'all with me now secondly we have to say a word about the lostness of the lost this whole story is about evangelism is it not the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And we could spend all morning on this. This is a very, very rich story about what it teaches us about evangelism. Think about it for a second. It teaches us that people who we don't consider close to the kingdom, that we don't really think of as prospects in the kingdom, that we don't want anything to do with because they're so lost, they're lost to everybody, even the community, are not lost to God. Right? God can save anybody. Right? If there's ever a story about God being able to save anybody, it's this story. And can I just point out to you for the umpteenth time, you do know, I just say this as a man to all the ladies in here, you do know that you can be lost and not know you're lost, right? We're all together on that, right? So you have people in your life, they look, I mean, think of what an upstanding, respectable guy this was when you saw him at the grocery store, right? He just, you know, he's a little bit short, okay, yeah, but I mean, he's got a nice prosperous house and he's well to do and all this kind of, so he doesn't look lost, he looks great, right? Seems well established, seems to be successful, utterly lost to God, utterly lost in sin, utterly destined for eternal judgment, no good. And Jesus is calling his church to recover the priority of seeking and saving the lost. And there's more. This passage gives us a hint at how you do that. And now I'm really going to go from preaching to meddling. This is a fascinating story about how evangelism really works. And there's a key in here that most churches never think about. And so what I want to do is I want to give it to you to think about, but I want to press it into you because it's going to take all of us collectively thinking about its implications for us at Holy Cross in terms of what it, what it means. Think about the outcome of the story. Okay, he gets saved and he's transformed. That's what Jesus wants. But what I'm interested in is how it starts. Because you don't get the outcome before start. all processes have sections. And it starts at the tree, does it not? It starts with the connection. And here's what I want you to realize about a tree. A tree, especially back then, but it's certainly true, and I'll get to this in a second for us, there are, you, you can't go directly to Zacchaeus' house. He wouldn't have Jesus in. That's way too threatening. You can't come up and knock on my door and say, hi, I really want to share something significant in my life with you. I'm not letting you in. I don't know who you are. 
I don't want to buy your Electrolux or whatever it is, right? But, but what do we have? Well, we, what do we used to have? I want you to think about this. These, 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 this is actually an architectural fact that a lot of Americans don't realize. If you go back to the 19th century and even the first half of the 20th century, a lot of houses have porches. They don't anymore because there are no sidewalks anymore. <laughs> because, right, people are not bowling alone. They're virtual bowling at home alone. Nobody even walks out there. And if they do, they have a Walkman. But what was the purpose of a porch? You had a sidewalk. but a por- What is a porch? A porch is an intermediate ground, right? You come by on the sidewalk. I don't know you. You don't know me. But we could ca- 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 start a conversation. And it's safe, right? I don't know. But, but the thing is, I can talk to you. And if it goes really well, what happens? I invite you onto the porch, right? Which is what happens. When Zacchaeus comes down from the tree, that's like somebody saying, come up on my porch. It's easier to go up on a porch than it is to go into a house. Here's a newsflash, brothers and sisters. It's hard not to be a Christian and to deal with Christians. You do know this, right? Do you have any idea how hard it is to come into an Anglican worship service if you're not a Christian? I mean, we have books, we go up and down, we have screens, and most people haven't got the foggiest notion what they're doing. It's not very user-friendly, right? A lot of Christians don't want to be anywhere near a church. So the question this this, uh, passage raises is, not simply the priority of evangelism, but the how of evangelism. Here's the $64,000 question. I'll ask it in two ways. I'll ask it in the Zacchaean way, and then I'll ask it in the contemporary way. The Zacchaean way is, where are the trees in Daniel Island and um, Sullivan's Island where non-Christians and Christians can interact and start a relationship that are not as threatening as the church? The contemporary way to ask it is, you and I have to find creative ways to make porches, right? So what's an example? Let's just, get, let's just take one example. So an example would be you have a, uh, what do we call the small groups? Life groups, okay? I got, I got to get all this Holy Cross uh, uh, terminology down. Okay, so you and your life group, you all have friends. So let's just say hypothetically that you decide as a life group you're going to pray for half a year, and all of you are going to invite one friend to your house uh, for a dessert, uh, for questions about the Christian faith, and you have one of the clergy over, and they simply come and they take questions. Now, why might that work? Well, it might work because it's a lot easier to go to somebody's house, but it's even better if you go to somebody's house that you knew, and it's even better if they have good dessert, right? The, po- the point is that it's easier to go to somebody's house and you're using, you see what I'm getting at. We have to spend time. The, the, this is not an easy culture to do evangelism in. The, the way to find porches takes enormous creativity and energy. But what we need to realize about this passage is if Jesus' number one priority is to reach the lost, it needs to be ours as well. There's an old Mercedes-Benz commercial where the car, for those of you who remember, it crashes into the metal, and the, the, the announcer says that the Mercedes-Benz patent has never been claimed for this super exotic metal that they have that can withstand this huge crash. And the, the, the voice says, why, why haven't you ever claimed the patent? And the voice says, some stories are too good not to be shared. Boom. Well, that's a Mercedes-Benz commercial for a metal patent, for crying out loud. But it makes it packs a point. The, point. the point is, if it's really good, it does deserve to be shared, right? So how come Mercedes-Benz is more willing to share their stuff than we are ours? That's the question. 
So, brothers and sisters, I give you Zacchaeus, the utterly transformed rich man who was ostracized beyond all measure. And Jesus came, and Jesus sought him, and Jesus changed him. And the same Jesus that changed him can change us. Thanks be to God. In Jesus' name, amen.